And it's just about volume, money-making, maximizing profit. I mean, this started these two and a half thousand years ago, and this is a, a reflection, an echo of the past. But it's just one past, one echo. And I think we need to echo our other past, our other history. So we need to go back to this communal understanding and being in service of nature as part of nature. Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast Digging Deeper by Stichting Boerengroep Wageningen. This podcast will dig deep into agriculture matters and practices. From the fields of the Netherlands to the far-reaching corners of the world, we explore a broad spectrum of agricultural topics to hopefully educate and inspire you, our listeners. Our episodes will provide knowledge from both science and practice to explore every topic from multiple perspectives. We are on a mission for a social, just and sustainable food system that nourishes both people and the planet. We invite you to be a part of this mission. So without further ado, let's start digging deeper together by diving into this episode. Our guest in this episode is Edo Caceres Salgado. With Chilean roots and a strong connection to his ancestral lands, Edo got in touch with agroecology and regenerative farming while setting up his own farm in Chile. Working there with smallholder farmers and indigenous communities has led him to set up his own company selling natural cosmetics, Masnuen, and it also gave him a different perspective on place, economy and culture. In this episode, we talk about our roots, our connection to the land that we live on and to the people around us, about bioregions and about creating thriving local economies. My name is Mati, and I'm the host of today's podcast. I'm sitting here together with Edo. Welcome, Edo. How are you? I'm doing fine. Nice. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting us into your house. We have a beautiful view already on your garden in the back. Can you tell a little bit about yourself, about the work that you do and how you got into that work? Um, so, um, let me see. I was born in the northern part of the Netherlands uh, in a very rural area in a small village called Kudijk. So my connection with um, agriculture has always been there. Um, and then, so my parents originally come from Chile. They were uh, political refugees. They arrived here in the 70s, so I was born here. But I always had a very strong root uh, with my, um, how do you, would you say it, with my ancestral lands in Chile. Uh, and then about 14 years ago, I moved from the Netherlands to Chile to start a farm. And that's where I got introduced with agroecology, with regenerative farming, uh, with agroforestry, syntropic systems. Um, so I've been working there for uh, that period and from building our own farm that moved into working with smallholder farmers and indigenous communities. And that work resulted in setting up a company in natural cosmetics. And working with natural cosmetics, that really moved me into having a different view on uh, places, economy and uh, cultures. And so for us uh, working with our company or working with these uh, communities is about creating thriving economies that are in service of places. And the places most of the time are bioregions. That can be a watershed or uh, an ecosystem. Or... So that's kind of how I got into it. Beautiful. So you started your company, which is called Mas Nguyen, yeah. in Chile? Yes. And then you moved it back here? Yeah, so I started the company in Chile, but it, I, I did it at the same time in the Netherlands. So I was always working on both sides. And for the last three and a half years, I've been... So ever since Corona, I've been uh, situated uh, in the Netherlands. And I've been living here in South Veluwe, Bennekom next to Wageningen, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the place where we are right now in Bennekom and what you're doing here? <clears throat> so this this place where we are uh, is, the, is the family house for my wife. Uh, our daughter was born here last year, uh, so she's fourth generation in this house. 
and uh, it has a small plot of land, a forest. So I've been looking at this forest and I've been implementing some syntropic techniques. I've been changing it from just pines to something more like a food forest. But I've also been introducing some old grains that I got from Marcel van Silvhout from Graangeluk. So I, I'm, I'm recreating raadakkers and terrasakkers in the forest. So I'm combining forestry, so perennial system with annual system. And it's it's like I'm it's it's an experiment that I'm doing. And it's also uh, uh, this is my um, yeah, how could you say it? This is my uh, my learning space. So while I'm doing the forest, I'm learning about the history of this area and where this house is built upon and how this area uh, was 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 created uh, or co-created by nature and by humans for at least ten thousand years. So I've been learning a lot here. Yeah. And you already mentioned the concept of a bioregion. Yeah. Uh, you're also working with the South Veluwe watershed, which is a bioregion. Yeah. And if I understood correctly, I think Mos Nguyen is also a part of this bioregion, amongst other initiatives, projects that are situated in the same watershed. Sure. What are you doing with South Veluwe watershed and what does it exactly entail? So so everybody who lives here in the South Veluwe watershed is part of the South Veluwe watershed humans and non-humans. So uh so this 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 area this this watershed uh is formed after the last glacial period about 11 and a half thousand years ago and uh so we have two glacial hills the Veluwe and the Utrechtse Heuvelrug and it goes into a point all the way to the south and it ends at the Rhein. It starts somewhere at the Goudsberg. I mean, it's much bigger, but our, our watershed specifically from, the I think it's called Goudsberg and Lunteren all the way to the Rhine, all the water flows down to the, to the Rhine. Um, so everybody who lives in that watershed is part of our watershed. But we have lost this idea, this notion on how we relate to the areas where we live. So, um, and yes, Masnewen is also part of this watershed because we have a store in Wageningen. And also because we have a foundation that is working on uh, biocultural restoration by connecting places with economies and cultures. So what we see in this watershed is that we want to bring back this notion that we are interconnected, interdependent with the place where we live. So we depend on all the water that is, is being captured in this watershed and that really sets the stage on how we do things with each other, how we create our, we do our agriculture, how we, where we drink our water, how we drink our water, how our roads are made, where our houses are built. All these things, they all are interrelated. And also how we r relate to each other. So it's a confined space that we're looking at. It's also something that outside of the Netherlands is much more known. So when you work in South America, uh, they, 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 then, then, then the notion of a bioregion is much more pronounced because you can actually see the water catchment. You can see where the hills are and you can see where the mountains are and you can really hear and see the river much more pronounced. So people have a better idea of what a bioregion means. And here in the Netherlands, because we're all being taught that it's completely flat, we don't see that. But actually, we do have watersheds and we do have bioregions. We just need to remember it. Yeah. So how would you exactly define a bioregion? Is it mostly formed by the watershed and where the boundaries of this watershed are? I mean, it can be. It can also be a wetland system, for instance. So I work in South America with an indigenous community and they live in a very big um, uh, wetland system between the sea and a mountainous area. And there it's not necessarily a watershed, but, uh, yeah, but a wetland system. So it also differs from areas. So a bioregion 
most of the time is an ecological boundary. And in our case, the boundaries are the rivers and the glacial hills. Yeah. I see. What are um, examples of kind of projects that are happening in this bioregion, the South Veluwe watershed? So our watershed in the Netherlands is very special because it's the only glacial formation that we have in the Netherlands. So it's unique. But another thing that's also unique is that um, on these hills, some of the first ag uh, agriculture started also in the Netherlands. So you have some in Drenthe, you have some in the south of the Netherlands, and you have it here where you see the Raadakkers, where there were lots of bosduinders also, so people that uh, did perennial work and also later on combined it with annuals. So there's a very long history here in this area of proto-agriculture and agriculture. And also because of the glacial formation, we have uh, lots of different soil types. So later on also the Wageningen University arrived here, but that was much later. The culture of doing agriculture in this area is very old, is millennial, ancestral. So that makes it unique from a history perspective, from a more, how would you say it, a more modern perspective. Um, you know, this is, in this area, you, know, you have Streekwaar. I, I, I also work for Streekwaar, which is an agroecological producers union. Um, and actually this project started out of Streekwaar because... I was working with them and I'm working with them on building a logistics system. And when we started making that, I started to look at this area like I do in South America. I was like, so what is the bioregion? What is the area of logistics that we need to do? And then we mapped where all the producers of Streekwaar are and they're exactly on those glacial hills. And was also what was very interesting is that If you look at the mapping of the Stregwa producers and if you if you put it next to the mapping of where the Raadakkers are or where agriculture started, it's almost a mirror. So that was very interesting to understand. And when we saw that, we thought, okay, so actually we need to talk about our bioregion because we have a collective culture here. And um, what's very interesting is that if you look at the Netherlands, there's lots of... Uh, area development going on, but there's, there aren't many places like this area where there are so many people working on ecology, agroecology, farming, and not just in this area itself, but also people that live here, they do this work in other places. So it's a, it's a small area, about 10,000 hectares, with a very high concentration of very knowledgeable people when it comes to maybe implementing future systems that have been doing this also for almost three decades in some cases. Some of the first CSAs were here. So if you start looking at the richness of knowledge in this specific area, then it's, it's pretty impressive. But one of the things that we saw is that people that work farming tend to just stay in the area, in the silo of people that do farming. People that work biology, they just tend to stay in their own silo and they just connect with people that do biology. And so our idea was if we start looking at this watershed and if we want to create this living culture of people that are doing economy, that are creating a culture in service of this place, then first of all, they should connect with each other. And that also goes for the people in institutional um, in the institutional systems. So people from university should connect with farmers, farmers should connect with artists, artists should connect with uh, biologists and so on. So, so we thought if we start doing um, assemblies where we invite all these people to talk about um, common topics, then they will find out that there's lots of commonalities happening here and that there is lots of potential for cultural weaving. And these assemblies that you're talking about, they are already happening and have been happening? Yeah. Since when uh, has this started? So last year, um, we were selected 
as one of the four uh, innovation places in Europe that are looking at innovations in food systems. But we took it as a more territorial, uh, we took a more territorial approach and Yes, we want to talk about innovative food systems and food sovereignty, but in a bioregional context with our own culture, our own history, our own ways of doing, our own producers, and also creating our own vision and working on our own future. So we did our first assembly in September in the Omur de Tuin from Esther Kuyle. Last September. Last September, okay, yeah. yeah. We had more than 70 people from het waterschap to the university, from the province, from the municipalities, farmers, artists. The youngest person was seven weeks old, which was my daughter, and the oldest person was 70-something. So we had also a very broad uh, age range. We had men, women people with a migratory background, because also this area in that sense is very special. If, if, if when you look how people are already very caring to each other and very welcoming, this is one of the qualities that we have here in, in, in the area of Wageningen, Bennekom, Ede, is that it's, so you have the faith-based communities from the Bible Belt, but you also have... Uh, Lots of people with a migratory background from the asset says, and then you have very political engaged students. So all of this together creates a lot of potential for some very nice visioning and dreaming together. Yeah. And this assembly is one example of bringing people together and creating opportunities for exchange. Do you want to organize more of these assemblies? And maybe also what are other ways in which you're trying to create this network and more of this social exchange also? So the first one was in September. The last one we did, the second one we did was um, two weeks ago in Lunteren at the Groot Fort from Remeker. And this time we had about 60 people and much more younger people and people that are doing projects like uh, Drinkable Rivers Wageningen. Um, but we also had people from um, Renkums Beekdal and Gletscher Paradise and also from the Waterschap. And what was really nice is that during that whole assembly, that whole meeting where we, last time we had a deep, look deep dive into our collective history. We went 400,000 years back in this area and we went all the way to the now and from there into the future. We had a, a theater uh, performance by the Waterlanders uh, that was speaking, uh, they were speaking the voice of the watershed, who was female, by the way, and speaks from the water element. Uh, it was really nice is that all these people, they really embodied what 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 it means to live here. And what was great, at the end of the day, everybody started to connect, like people that you didn't expect. So we had a few guys that, you know, they go in the morning, they go swimming in the Rhine. They call themselves the Rhine spirits. And they were singing chants and they were connecting with the people from the Waterschap. <laughs> that those connections aren't obvious, but it happens. And it happened in that assembly. So those are the things that we want to do or or or, or that we do. And we want to do these assemblies at least once a year so that we have this collective cultural ritual with each other where we come together also, where we remember where we come from, where we understand where we're going to, that we also know each other from different areas, that we can see the potentials with each other and have open conversations about what it is that we need as humans and what it is that we need as a collective watershed and how we can be in service of creating the right conditions for future generations. That those conversations, we need to continue to, we, we, we need to have those conversations and they need to continue. Yeah. Yes. You already mentioned a bit in the beginning that we've lost a bit of connection to the land, to each other, uh, to our roots in this area. And you also mentioned the concept of biocultural restoration. 
what does that exactly mean? So, um, so you have this whole idea that is pretty strong also in this area is the separation of man and nature and looking at nature as a place of recreation and looking as man as a being that only creates destruction. That's a very new eco-modernist sort of perception that if you really start going back 400,000 years or 10,000 years, then you see that we were actually beings living in interdependence with our surroundings. We're a symbiotic being, that we actually have a role inside of nature. We're not separated from that. So understanding that we are part of nature and that we have a role as a steward of taking care of our collective nature, that idea already is a biocultural restoration process because you start to, instead of disassociating with nature, just by knowing that you're part of it, you start to integrate with nature. Now, that's an internal work that we could do. And those things also happen in these assemblies is that people start to feel that they are part of nature because they start to understand that they have a role in nature. Now, there is also a physical way that you can do that, is that you start working with nature. One of the ways of doing that is to become a farmer, to live with the seasons and understand that you know, that, the, the, that there are cycles and that you're part of the cycle. And once you start doing that, you already start to resonate with the rhythm of nature and you start to become nature. But we can also take it a step further, is that if everything we do is in service of nature, not just working agriculture, but how we walk, how we work, what we do with our energies, so our economic energies, where do we put, where do we invest our time, our money in? Um, maybe the work that we do can be in service of nature. Maybe the conversations we have can be in service of nature. Maybe we can teach our children that they should be in service of nature. That All of that is part of biocultural restoration. So it's taking it a few steps further. And I think that farmers have that innate capacity to understand that they are part of nature because they work the cycles. But I think that an artist also has that capacity to understand that they are part of nature. So I, my, I mean, my vision would be that all our companies, all our endeavors are in service of nature. So that our culture, that we create a culture that is in service of nature or our nature, or our place. So our place is our nature. So and in our case, our place, our nature is our watershed. And if we understand that, that, that this watershed is like a collective consciousness, that if she is completely in resonance with what she's, what she's supposed to do, then she becomes an identity and we can speak to her and we can recognize her and we can take care of her so that she can take care of us. You give a very beautiful description of being a farmer and living with the rhythm of nature and the seasons. And you already spoke a bit also about what you're experimenting and playing with in your own land here close to Bennecombe, trying to move back to an agricultural system that maybe was in place here hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. How do you get access to this kind of knowledge? Where does that knowledge come from? Because I can imagine that that has also been partially lost over time with other types of agriculture coming in and us losing that connection to our land and traditions. For sure. Uh, for sure we lost a lot of, of that knowledge. Like, like we, we, we don't remember a lot of th that knowledge. But if you... So, for instance, the area where we are now originally was called Moftbos. And so there's a few stories about where the name comes from, but one of the stories is that it's connected to the Mopates. And, and in the times of the Germanic tribes and the Celts or the Klokbeker culture, um, 
the Mobates was the Trinity goddess, and that if you took care of this Trinity goddess, then the horn of abundance would arrive and there would be abundance in the land. So this forest is where she would live. So this is a, Mofbos is a sacred name. So that's already very old. And so there's a few ways of looking at this trinity of abundance. We look at the trinity of abundance if you take care of place. So where we live, uh, culture, who we are, and economy, what we do, if those three things are in, 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 in balance, then we create abundance. So that's a very old knowledge and it's something that we can take to the now. So that's one way how we can remember these things. But it's also about talking with people like Esther from the Omuritan has lots of knowledge about the baker, about the old stories from this area, talking to old neighbors, uh, reading about this area. There's lots of knowledge to be... Uh, to, 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 to pick up. It's lying there. It's just that sometimes we don't take the time to dig deeper. Uh, another thing also is to understand where our agriculture comes from. So, for instance, all these old grains that we have here originally come from Turkey. And if you start looking as where they come from, from the Fertile Crescent, and you start seeing that all these places where agriculture started were sacred places like Gobekli Tepe and you see that places like Stonehenge or there they found like a type of Stonehenge in Teal. Um, there are all copies of this these old places where agriculture comes from and then you can already tap into this old understanding of who we are, where we come from, our relationship to immigration, our relationship to... Uh, migratory populations of men and seeds. Like you can just l look for these things, but it's also taking the time to connect the dots. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's also about a different way of looking and wondering again about our environment and the roots. I think also, I mean, I've been working with uh, indigenous communities for the last decade. So also I have a different maybe approach of looking at things or listening to things. I also, I, I didn't go to the university or I didn't go to uh, an agricultural education. So I learned by doing, by praxis. And I learned by listening to people that learned the same way and that they taught me by storytelling. And so storytelling gives a lot of information. So also I have maybe a different wiring to listen to stories and make connections and maybe look in a different manner to our surroundings. So maybe it's a combination. But I but what I do see is when once people start seeing these things, they embody it pretty quickly. They understand it pretty quickly. So so that's what we try to do on the assemblies, do really good storytelling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and foster connections that otherwise maybe wouldn't happen, I can imagine, like the one you just described. Yeah, yeah, and, and do storytelling on a human level. So sit with each other in a circle, look at each other in our eyes, you know, maybe have one-on-ones. Like all these things are very important to have this knowledge exchange on a human level because those are the things, I mean, going to the university, of course, is very good and necessary, but only listening and looking at a PowerPoint, that's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, to maybe uh, go to a bit of a bigger scale, you said that the South Available Watershed is supported uh, by the European Union Green Deal. How did that start? Because it sounds like quite an interesting combination also of a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach to somehow support and finance that. How does that work and how did that start? So I, I just told uh, a little bit about this, this, um, this, these, these four innovative areas in Europe. So you have Northern Europe, Sweden, you have Slovenia and Italy, and then you have uh, uh, the Netherlands here, the area 
around Wageningen, but we took it a bit broader and we said, so we should talk about our territory and our territory is uh, a watershed that is our bioregion. And um, so that, that came from this, this approach from the European Union to have a look and to see where there is food innovation. And so we thought, well, you know, we have uh, Streekwaar in this area and 40 agroecological producers is pretty innovative if you compare to the rest of the Netherlands or maybe even to the rest of Europe. So that was sort of the starting point. And this mapping of where all these producers were, uh, where, where they have their lands and where they are producing, And, and mirroring that with the Raadakkers, this is how we understood, okay, we have to take it broader. And so we, we, uh, we were part of the, it's called the, the, the shared green deal from the European Union. And, that, and, and so we got funding to do these assemblies to talk about our, in essence, our food systems. But we thought, no, we should talk about our culture because everything else comes from there our food systems, our education systems. We need our education systems to have a good food system. So we took culture as, as, as a more overarching topic. And then we said, well, it's about our area, so it has to be about our, or not our area, our place, our territory. It should be about bioculture. So that's kind of how we started. And when did that happen? That happened last year, and then the first assembly was the one in, in September. Yeah. Would you say that you feel rooted here? Uh, so strangely enough, I left the Netherlands. We left the Netherlands about 13 years ago because we didn't have the idea that what we wanted to do was possible here in the Netherlands. Also because in that time I was trying to speak with people about regeneration or also about bioregions and territory and also speaking to some farmers that were doing maybe more in, in innovative farming, they still didn't understand that topic. It wasn't really landed here in the Netherlands. Um, it was more about individual projects, not about collective territorial projects or not even projects, just movements. Um, so when I arrived in Chile, I found already that they had, and just South America in general, that they have decades of experience of territorial communal work in agroecology alone and systems from one hectare to two and a half thousand hectares or full ecosystems with communities involved. And so when I got there, I was like, wow, this is, this is where I want to learn because they have the experience. Then during Corona, when we came back to the Netherlands, out of necessity, we came back and we just started to root more here. And finally, we ended up here in this area. I, man, I got connected to the agroecology network and started meeting people here in this area. And then I thought, wow, it's, it's happening here now. I want to be part of this. And then, uh, Each day I feel that I'm becoming more rooted here and actually I don't want to leave this place. I, I see that there is so much groundwork that has been done, but there's so much still that can be done that I see that I have a role to play and a responsibility to take here also. Especially now that my children are born here, that they're going to school here. Like I, 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 I feel like I'm rooting deeper and deeper each time, yeah. Would you say that the examples that you're describing from Chile are some sort of inspiration for you also and a drive maybe for the work that you're doing here to create something similar? Uh, I mean, of course, they're very inspiring. I mean, not. I mean, there's also lots of challenges there uh, on quite a scale from mega forest fires to extreme drought and privatization of rivers and uh, high-level deforestation and uh, issues with land rights in indigenous communities. Like everything that you don't want to see somewhere is happening there. And at the same time, everything that you would love to see is also happening there out of necessity. 
So I mean, I think the biggest the, the biggest inspiration I see from there is the resilience that people have built into their communities and into their personal lives and their systems. So that's a big inspiration for sure. But also we have a different context here. So also we need to do things that are uh, appropriate to our context here. So that means that we need to understand our common history. We need to understand our common foundations and we need to envision and dream a common future. But there's definitely potential for exchange. There should be. I mean, there's a lot that we can learn from South America or the global South for that matter. There is, uh, they, they're ahead of the game out of necessity. We have this very strange idea here that we from the Netherlands, we go and we bring the innovation to the rest of the world, but actually we're pretty much behind here on many levels. Uh, so I think we, we, we can learn some humility from the South and some resilience and some um, good visioning, yeah, good dreaming. They, they really know how to dream. And you would say that dreaming and also these bioregions that you describe are fostered out of necessity or maybe also the other way around, partially disappearing because of privatization, huge forest fires, the other the problems that you're describing. Yeah, so I mean, so both things are happening there. Um, so you see land displacement from people, um, you also see intentional communities popping up. I mean, there's so many young people there working the land from, I don't know, young people in their 20s doing key line systems with syntropic forestry on a big scale. Also, I mean, I have to say in Chile, there's the same amount of people living uh, as in the Netherlands, but it's... I think in land mass, it's about 20 or 25 times bigger than the Netherlands. It's just there's so much more land there, so much more room. At the same time, a lot of this land is prone to forest fires and, and the, the desertification is also extreme. So people need to learn really quick there how to implement the system. So... They don't think too much about it. They do over there. And um, and so, so, yeah, you see people that are being displaced, but you also see people that are implementing on a big scale, yeah, out of necessity, out because of these forest fires, this land displacement. Yeah. Yeah, people want to be independent there also. It's so big uh, that if you live deep in the south, I mean, going to the capital... It's just very, very far away. Chile is very long. It's about 3,000 kilometers long. So it's, it's, it's very difficult. So you need to also be very independent. People are very used to creating their own electricity, making their own water wells, producing their own food, doing their own homesteading, uh, like preparing for the whole year, building their own houses, uh, and they're young, people doing all of this, what I'm saying, they're sometimes like in their 20s doing this. So we can learn that from them, yeah. For sure. I can imagine it's also quite a contrast to spend quite a lot of your time over there in Chile and quite a lot of your time here in the Netherlands. I mean, I'm most of the time in the Netherlands now. I mean, I, I used to be most of the time in Chile, but um, I'm here in the Netherlands, in the South Valley watershed. <laughs> this, this is my home now, yeah. What would you say drives you in the work that you're doing here in the watershed? So I think my drive is that what I'm seeing, because I've been looking at the Netherlands also my whole life, and I've been seeing issues that I see happening in Chile. I see them slowly coming to the Netherlands. And we have this idea here that we're safe, that... You know, all of these troubles, like huge forest fires, they're not going to happen here. But I can already see signs that it's coming. So my drive is, because my children were born here and we live here, my, my, I think one of the drives that I have is that I, is, 
I want to see my children become very resilient. So I love to see a culture that is focused on future generations that are not only resilient, but are taking care of their surroundings. I think that's what we need. And I think that's what we've lost here. Um, so one of the drives is to make a more resilient community. Yeah. And you say it's one of the things we've lost here. Um, are there any other examples of movements like we are seeing here in this watershed that are happening in different places in the Netherlands or maybe in Europe where we've also lost this connection? So I think in other places in Europe, there's more of a notion of territorial and communal work. In Italy, you have the Biodistretos. They're very known, so they work already on this territorial level. I think the Netherlands especially is a very individualistic, very competitive, looking at scarcity kind of culture. And when you are competitive and your idea is that we're living in a world of scarcity, then you start to become very extractive because there isn't enough. And so these territorial communities there are that are about communal living, they're all focused on abundance. So I think that's what we lost here in the Netherlands. I think in other parts, it's still there. If you look at maybe more southern countries, in many cases, it's still there or it's coming back. So for in Spain, for instance, you see that a lot of young people are going back to... Um, The, the 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 ghost villages also, and they're also taking a bioregional approach. Because I think it's something human also that we create this collective notion of living in a place as a community. And so I think it's also something that is just coming back. I think now it's also coming back in in the Netherlands. But I think it's everywhere in the world. It's just once you see it, you see it and you can connect to it. If you just go to the Albert Heijn uh, every day or uh, to whatever supermarket and you just depend on the rest and you don't see it. Where do you think that started, this last connection? So in, in the second assembly, uh, we did a long timeline of human history. So we started with the Neanderthals and uh, and then we moved into uh, the last ice age and then we moved from uh, uh, we did this talk together with Malika Siedemans and uh, uh, and then we went from these combined systems so 12, 10,000 years ago you had these systems where they were doing gardening like forest gardening combined with annuals and hunting gathering, we had this very abundant symbiotic system where it was all about abundance and uh, like living in commons. And then the more we started focusing on the annual systems, the grains, so the more we started doing this annual producing of grains and creating volumes of seed, this notion of extraction, the more we got into that, and especially when the first Romans arrived in this area and started to displace people from their land, this is where we see a big drop in the change of our culture that is in symbiosis or has an interdependent relationships with our surroundings. Because from that moment on, it really became about extracting and oppression, paying taxes, um, all of these things. So I would say about two and a half thousand years ago, that was the first beginning of this patriarchy of being oppressed, being displaced. And then if you move on to 500 something years ago when... Uh, When, when, when the first colonization happened of, uh, of South America, it became worse. And from there we went into neoliberalism and it became even more <laughs> terrible. So it's, it was a, a sliding scale going down two and a half thousand years ago and it just became more and more. Would you say that big agricultural companies nowadays are maybe taking that same position of 
using a lot of the land uh, with similar principles that they're working with and thereby not leaving so much space anymore for other sorts of farmers that are having a very different relationship to the land. A hundred percent. I mean, they're 100 percent extractivistic and they're in many cases very colonial. They go to these places in the in the southern hemisphere. They do land displacement, and then then they start to push chemicals, fertilizers. They push the people out. They push the culture out, and it's just about volume, money making, maximizing profit. I mean, this started these two and a half thousand years ago, and this is a a, a, a reflection and echo of the past. But it's just one past, one echo. And I think we need to echo our other past, our other history. So we need to go back to this communal understanding and being in service of nature as part of nature. I think these, these, these modern uh, big agro companies, they are just, uh, they are completely disconnected non-natural, inhuman <laughs> systems, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. What would you say are the, to summarize also a bit, the principles at the basis of your work and maybe also how to uh, transfer that to different places where this connection has also been lost and uh, where it would be beautiful to also refoster these connections with each other and with the land? I mean, the principle is, would be going back to the trinity, of who we are, um, or where we are, who we are, and what we do. And if th those three elements are in service of the places where we live, so if we can create cultures that are in service of life, if we can create economies, and not economies in the sense of money-making, economies in the essence of the word of taking care of our surroundings, taking care of our home, how we exchange our energies, how do we live with each other, if we can create economies that are in service of our cultures and our places, so that our places can be in service of our economies and our cultures, then we're there and it's not so difficult. It's not so difficult to understand that we need to be living in service of life as part of life. But it means that we need to maybe radically change the way that we're doing things. So that also means that maybe we need to let go of some of the ways that we buy our groceries or how we buy our clothing. And, and it's not that utopian. It's, it's going to be a necessity. In a world that we're living now where things are becoming more critical each time, we need to fundamentally change our cultures. Cultures in plural also. So it's also not about creating one culture, one system, because each place has a different geophysical um, situation or look or reality. Each place has a different history, so therefore each culture is a different culture. And so we also need to understand that we need to have, a, have this plural look to our places and our cultures and our economies. They need to be created in such a way that they are in service of the place that we're uh, yeah, living these cultures or doing these economies. Yeah. It also is a way of embracing our diversity. Thank you. Um, I would like to slowly wrap up the, the episode. And I would like to ask you a question, maybe also to bring it a bit to a personal level for the people who are listening. How would you say could we, on a daily basis, try to make people wonder a bit more again about the environment that they're living in and the roots and the traditions that are part of this? So I would, I would say have a good look of where you come from. So we all have, have ancestors and we are all indigenous to the places where we live and where we were born or where our ancestors were born. So I would say 
look further than the Romans did in back into time. Like really look where we come from as a human species and how we were living with our surroundings. Just to have an idea who we are. I think that's one thing that we can do. Another thing that we could do is try to understand nature cycles and see how you can fit that maybe in your daily life. Go outside, have a look at the stars and at the moon and see how they move in a cycle. Uh, I mean, it sounds esoteric, but maybe it'll humble you a bit and, 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 uh, and, and, and make you understand that you're just a tiny, tiny particle in an immense multiverse. Um, so those things can connect us, talk with people, uh, and maybe even better so listen to people. <laughs> yeah, you know, talk to an elder, listen to an elder, ask questions, um, ask a lot of questions, listen a lot. Those things, yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you for a very inspirational story. Do you have any last remarks or things that you feel like we missed or you would still like to touch upon? Uh, no, I, it's, it's, it was a wonderful story. I was happy to share. And uh, I would say uh, go to our website from its stroomgebied, stroomgebied.org. Perfect. We'll link yeah. that in the description also. Wonderful. Um, and yeah, because my next question was going to be, is there any way for people to get involved? But I guess that's the best way to go, to have a look on the website. Yeah, so uh, Instagram, Stroomgebied, South Veluwe, website, stroomgebied.org. Those are the best ways. Have, have, have a look over there and connect with us. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you feel inspired by Edo's story to reflect upon your own connection to the environment that you call home. If you are interested in the work that Edo is doing and in the activities that are happening in the bioregion South Available Watershed, have a look on their website or on their Instagram page that are linked in the description. If you want to know more about the Boerengroep Wageningen, the organization behind this podcast, you can find our details in the description below. We are on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also come to one of our open meetings every other Tuesday or to one of our informal breaks every other Thursday, where we chat and we enjoy drinks together. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out to this podcast, feel free to send us an email on podcast underscore digging deeper at outlook.com. Thanks again for listening and have a good day. <laughs> <laughs>